Well, 11 a.m., I'm really excited to bring you this word, and especially after Shermaine's encouragement uh, just after worship, because I know that many people can actually have that question at different times in their life. Many people can ask God why I, I just don't understand. And, and I feel like if that's you, this is a message that's for you today. But this is a message for everybody today because God can speak through scripture to every single person. But what matters is if your heart is open. And so I'm wondering if we could just pray before we jump into it, if we could open our hearts to what God wants to say. Because even though the government may limit our numbers in the room, that does nothing to limit God in the room. It doesn't matter if there's just two people here or a hundred people here. The same God is here with us and he wants to speak to you. So can we pray? God, we just thank you that in a changing world with changing alert levels, you are a God who is unchanging. You are a God who is faithful and consistent. You are strong and steady. And so today we lean on you. Today we, we come before you and we draw closer to you. And God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We ask that you would speak to our minds and you would show us what it is you want to say to us through this message. And I just ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in part three of prayers that move heaven. And I'm so excited that we actually get together in the room for this because if there's any series that the enemy would love to silence and keep us at home, it would be a prayer like, I mean, a message series like this when we're talking about prayers that move heaven. And often when prayers that move heaven, it's against the attacks of the enemy. It's against what the enemy's trying to do. And so how good that we can be in the room to be encouraged with this today. My message is called The Rain is on its way. The rain is on its way. You can write that down or the notes are in your Elam app. But I was two weeks ago, I mentioned a guy in my sermon that maybe you heard about. And I said, I'm going to preach on him in two weeks because I wanted to tell you guys the whole story. I gave you a snippet two weeks ago, but today I want to tell you more about a man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God. And let me tell you this, prophets of God, they did not have an easy job in the Old Testament because more often than not, the king that was in power was a king that was wicked and evil and going against God's commands. And so prophets of God had a hard job in coming up against those kings because prophets of God are people who will hear directly from God. They'll receive a word or a message or a warning to give to certain kings, officials, or entire nations. And so when they would share these words, it's not always what the king wants to hear, but it's what they need to hear. But oftentimes when we don't hear what we want to hear, we can just get defensive and put our walls up and start to blame other people, right? And that's what these kings would do. And so in Elijah's time, there's this king named Ahab. And here's what you need to know about Ahab. And we're centering ourselves today in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. So if you got your Bible, you can turn there and we'll jump into scripture very very soon. But in Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 17, that's when we first meet Elijah because he comes forward and he declares this prophecy over the land, over Israel, whom King Ahab is leading at this moment. And he declares this word saying, there is going to be a drought for several years until I say so. So that, that's a pretty big word to say there's going to be no rain in the land. This is not a word that the king wants to hear because they depend on the rain, right? They depend on the rain for their livestock. They depend on the rain for their, uh, their crops and their harvest. They depend on the rain for their livelihood. And so to hear that there's going to be no rain is not a word that you want to hear, right? Remember, we've been, we've been on Auckland water shortages. Imagine Imagine we were in a drought for three years. Like that's pretty hectic. That's what's about to happen. 
And so because this is a word that Ahab doesn't want to hear, he wants to kill Elijah. Because if they don't like the words of God, they just want to shut him up. And so oftentimes prophets would have to declare this word and then they'd get a little bit scared and they'd go into hiding. And so God actually sent Elijah into hiding immediately after he declared this word. Now, why is Ahab so evil? Well, he married a woman named Jezebel. Maybe you've heard that name before. They're like the dynamic evil duo in the Old Testament. Okay, so Jezebel, she comes in and she starts to introduce these pagan gods, these false gods to Israel's people. And she starts to bring in all these other gods for the people to worship false gods, which then divides Israel's loyalty to the one true God. So they were this dynamic evil duo. And the drought is all because of them. All because God is not pleased with the way that they're leading his people, his nation of Israel. But wicked people don't often like to admit that they're wrong. They like to shift the blame onto other people. And so they start to blame Elijah. And they're like, this is Elijah's fault. He said it. It's happened now. We got to find him. We got to kill him. But remember, he was sent into hiding. And so God sent him into this solitary place called the Kareth Ravine. And God said, I just need you to camp out by the brook there camp out there and trust that I'll send a flock of ravens to you to bring you bread and meat in both the morning and the evening. Just hang out there for a while, Elijah, okay? So that's where Elijah is. But I'm wondering if you hear this story and you're thinking, well, Darcy, how does this relate to me? Well, the thing is, is we've all had a drought season before. And maybe some of you are actually in a drought season right now, not necessarily a drought of rain, but it could be a drought of finances. It could be a drought of promise. It could be a drought of joy, a drought of community, a drought of love, a drought of peace. It doesn't matter what it is that you're lacking. We can all in some way relate to a drought season at some point in our lives. And in those seasons, you're often thinking, well, when are things going to change for me? Maybe we ask those questions like Shermaine shared, and we say, well, why, God? I don't understand why I'm in this season right now. Those seasons can lead you to try to do everything you can in your own efforts, and it can drive you mad, just like it drove Ahab mad, because he didn't understand. Those drought seasons can test even the strongest of Christians in the room. But there's a few things that I want us to learn from Elijah's story today. And I'm going to unpack it as we go. And here's the first thing you need to realize is that you should not miss the miracles in the middle. Don't miss the miracles in the middle. Now, maybe you didn't hear me earlier when I was explaining what happened to Elijah when he was sent into hiding. But God orchestrated a flock of ravens, a flock of ravens to care for him. Now, you know how animals have funny group names when they're together, like a school of fish, um, a murder of crows, that's actually one. Guess what ravens are called? An unkindness. An unkindness of ravens was chosen by God to display his kindness. I love that. God orchestrated an unkindness of ravens so that he could show his kindness to Elijah in that moment. And a flock of birds brought him meat and bread every morning and every night while he was camped out by this brook. Don't miss the miracles in the middle. There's always miracles happening in the middle of your drought season where God is wanting to show you his kindness by providing for your every need, giving you enough to get by until the rain comes. 
See, sometimes it's in the middle of your drought season that God also introduces you to certain people that you needed to meet along the way. People that are actually coming into your story for a very specific reason. And in chapter 17, after this brook dries up, God then sends Elijah somewhere else. He sends him to this area called Zarephath. And he says to him, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, God hadn't yet told this widow that Elijah, the prophet of God, was coming around. And so Elijah goes to Zarephath, and he meets this widow, and he finds out that she is on her last handful of flour and her last drops of oil. Remember, they're in a drought season. People are starving to death. They don't know where food and provision is going to come from. And Elijah, this prophet of God, comes to her and says, could you make me some bread? Could you bring me something to eat? And she's like, I only got a handful of flour and some drops of oil. This is my last meal for me and my son before we die. Now, first of all, I don't understand how you make a meal from that. Like, I don't understand how you make flour and oil into something. I'm not a professional cook, but if I saw that in my pantry, I'd be like, well, I'm dead. Don't know what to do with that. But she's got a handful of flour and some drops of oil. And Elijah says, no, would you actually make something for me first? And then make something for you and your son. And God says this to you. In verse 14, he says, the jar of flour will not be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And guess what? Every single day, there was enough food for all three of them. Every single day in this drought season, don't miss the miracles in the middle. Don't miss what happens in the middle because Elijah needed to be at this house at this time because something dramatic happens next. All of a sudden, her son dies. Now, this is not what you thought was going to happen in the story, right? All of a sudden, her son dies, and this shakes her faith. She knows that God has been providing for her and providing this provision in their flour and in their oil, but then her son dies, and that causes her to ask the question, why? I don't understand. But then Elijah steps forward, and he prays over the son, and he rises back to life. Don't miss the miracles in the middle. They're still in the drought season. There still hasn't been the promise of rain yet, but all of a sudden a son is risen back to life. Elijah had to be at that woman's house at that time in order to orchestrate that miracle. Don't miss your own miracles in the middle of your drought season because the person you've met along this season might have been orchestrated by God himself. The people that you meet, those little moments of provision when all of a sudden you had enough food on the table or all of a sudden you happen to have just enough in your bank account to pay rent or you all of a sudden got that email or met that person in the elevator that helped you connect with somebody else. All of a sudden, don't miss those miracles in the middle. It doesn't matter how small they are. Miracles are always happening while you're on your bigger promise to reign. But three years goes by. Three years of no rain. And then God says to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Now that seems like, okay, good. Rain is on its way, but I have to go present myself to that king that's trying to kill me. That king that has been hunting me down for years, you want me to just go and present myself to him and say, here I am, you can kill me now. That's the king that God is asking him to go to. But Elijah boldly goes forward. He, even, he knows he's the last one standing. There's a hundred prophets of God that are hidden in caves right now. Every other one of them has been murdered by Ahab's wife, Jezebel. 
And Elijah is asked to be the last man standing before this wicked king, his wicked wife, and this corrupt nation. Now, this is a huge request. I told you being a prophet of God was not an easy job. You often had a target on your back. But Elijah goes before Ahab and challenges all of his false prophets to a contest on Mount Carmel. Now, you might be thinking this is one-on-one contest. No, 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 no. False prophets, the number of false prophets in this kingdom, there were 450 false prophets of Baal. Baal was a false god that they worshipped. And then there's 400 prophets for Asherah, Baal's goddess wife. And so there's 850 false prophets in this kingdom that, in their words, have a seat at Jezebel's table. Means she welcomed them in, gave them food, made room for them to have influence in her kingdom. That's who he's up against. And so Elijah, one man. And he comes over. He's like, I'll take on all y'all. So this is what's going to happen now in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18. If you got your Bible, turn there with me or read it on the screen. But Elijah says to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. So why don't y'all get two bulls for us and let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. I'll prepare the other one and I'll put it on wood, but I won't set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, so you got one man going up against 450 men and the nation of Israel gathering around to watch this contest go down on Mount Carmel. And it says all the people said, all right, sounds good, mate. What you say is good. So they've all agreed that this is going to happen. And whoever sets fire to the offering, that's the true God. And Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and you prepare it first because there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light it on fire. So they took the bull given to them and they prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Hours, y'all. Hours. They're shouting out to this false God saying, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they made. They made a lot of noise. They were shouting, Baal, answer us. And I love this next part. It says, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I, I like picture this part where Elijah's just sitting in the corner, watching them get all frantic, dancing around. He goes, shout louder. Shout louder. Surely he is a God because maybe perhaps he's deep in thought. Maybe your God's just busy right now. Maybe he's traveling or maybe, maybe your God's just asleep. So wake him up. You know, like I loved Elijah. He's just over in the corner taunting these 450 men as they dance around looking absolutely foolish. And so they shout louder and they slash themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. So from morning until evening, they're shouting, they're dancing, but it says no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. These false prophets were putting on a big show before the people for hours. They're shouting, they're dancing, they're enthusiastic, they're making a lot of noise, but nothing happened. Why? Because false gods lead to false hopes. 
False gods lead to false hopes. They were all talk, but there was no action in these men. 450 prophets begging their false god to do something, and it led to false hopes in the people. 450 prophets of Baal, plus 400 prophets of Asherah, 850 compared to one man, that seems like the majority, right? That seems like the majority. And oftentimes, hear me when I say this, oftentimes in life, people will ignorantly side with the majority because they seem to make a lot of noise. People will sheepishly, naively side with with the majority because they seem to have the numbers. They seem to be everywhere. They seem to know what they're doing. But false gods lead to false hopes. You know why their prayers weren't moving heaven to respond? And not that day or any other day. It's because they weren't praying to the God of heaven. They were praying to something that was created by man. All of these false gods were formed from their own limited human perception. They were created out of their own limited human perception and limited human limitations, and they were worshiping something they created. So, of course, their prayers weren't moving heaven because what they were worshiping was not heavenly. It was earthly. Do you realize that it doesn't actually matter if you pray the right words or say it in a certain volume or in a certain way or with a certain accent, what matters is the God you pray to. That's what really matters. That's the type of prayer that will move heaven is if you pray to the God of heaven and him alone and not have this divided loyalty like these people now had. In John 15, 5, Jesus actually told us, apart from me, you can do nothing. What he means is without Jesus, you could do nothing eternal, nothing spiritual. You could try everything you possibly could in the physical, within your own human limitations, but without the God of heaven, you will do nothing of eternal significance. And then it's Elijah's turn to build his altar to God. And so he prepares his sacrifice. He puts it up onto the altar, and then he actually constructs people, uh, instructs, not constructs, instructs people to get four large jars of water and pour it all over the offering, soaking the wood. And then he says, do it again. And do it again. Now, people probably were first thinking, "Um, Elijah, we don't have a lot of water left. This is a drought. And you want us to pour 12 large jars of water all over this offering. And then secondly, it's pretty hard to light wet wood on fire, right? That's pretty much impossible, but what Elijah is doing is he's setting the scene. He's setting the scene to make room for the power of God to move so people can look at what's happening and say, without a doubt, this was a miracle from the God of heaven. And then he prays 63 words in English, even fewer in Hebrew. He prayed in Hebrew, which means that he prayed for less than a minute. And immediately, fire falls down from heaven and consumes the offering and the entire altar. It wasn't about babbling on like the pagans did for hours. It was about the God he prayed to. And everyone that was present there turned their hearts back to God. And the false gods, the false prophets were slain that day. After this public prayer, Elijah is now about to go into a moment of private prayer. But he first says something powerful to King Ahab, and I don't want you to miss this. It's just one verse, verse 41, but he says, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. Go eat and drink. Go celebrate, 
because there is the sound of a heavy rain. You see, this is important because what Elijah is saying is when God has given his guarantee, celebrate before you see it. When God has given you his guarantee, you can celebrate before you see it. And sometimes you got to learn how to celebrate before you see the promise of rain. Celebrate before the drought comes to an end. Celebrate just because of who God is. His guarantee can be trusted. So go eat and drink, said Elijah. There is the sound of a heavy rain. The rain is on its way. The God of heaven can make rainfall even after the longest season of drought. But I love that before the sound came, before that, the hearts of the people were turned back to worship. The hearts of the people were turned back to praise God and then the sound of the heavy rain. Do you realize that sounds of praise came before the walls of Jericho fell down? Sounds of praise came before the prison walls flew open and Paul and Silas were released from chains. Sounds of praise actually led King Jehoshaphat's army into battle. King Jehoshaphat, he actually appointed some singers holding no weapons, singers to go ahead of his army to confuse the enemy. There were three enemy armies up against him and he had singers out the front singing praise to God. And what happened was those three enemy armies got so confused by the sounds of praise that they all turn on each other. So by the time God's army of Judah rocked up on the sing praising God, they were all dead. And so I hope my life is like that, where I can go through life singing songs of praise, sounds of praise, where the enemy just gets confused and it's just falling down all over the place before I even arrive on the scene. You can celebrate before you see the promise because God is faithful and he gives us his guarantee. Even in a spiritual fight, in a drought season, you need to understand that praise is your greatest weapon. And the joy of the Lord is your greatest strength. That's why throughout our drought season that y'all heard about last week, throughout that season, we had a motto that we would carry confetti. Because it was a physical symbol that reminded us to celebrate and praise in every season. We celebrated before we saw the promise, before we saw the rain, because God had given us his guarantee. Now, after telling Ahab that the rain is on its way, Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel. And it says that he bends down to the ground and he puts his face between his knees. He just prayed publicly and he witnessed the power of God through fire. But now he's praying privately believing that he's going to witness the power of God through rain. Now, the only one with him was his servant. And he tells his servant while he's praying down on the ground, he tells his servant, now, can you go and look towards the sea? So the servant goes, comes back, and is like, there's nothing there. And so Elijah says, go back. Nothing there. Go back. Nothing there. Now, I don't know about you, but if your boss told you to go look for something multiple times and you didn't see it any time, you'd be like, how long is this going to go on for? Seven times, Elijah sends his servant to go back and look. And then in verse 44, it says, finally, the seventh time, his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Now, let me tell you all something fascinating before I move forward. I learned this from Jensen Franklin, but when God gave instructions to his people to build his temple in Ezekiel, he said to measure his temple with a cubit and a handbreadth. Now, you might be thinking, Darcy, what the heck is a cubit and what the heck is a handbreadth? Well, let me tell you all, we're about to learn it together real quick. Okay, you ready? Put your hand out, tuck your thumb in. 
Now, from finger to finger, the width of your hand, that's a hand breadth. Now, back in biblical days, they obviously didn't have this universal measuring system. And so they had to measure according to their bodies. And so that was a hand breadth. And now if you take that hand and you actually go from elbow to the tip of your finger, go ahead, do it with me now. five, six, six hand breadths. So this was a cubit that they would use to measure. So six hand breadths is what they would use to measure. And here's the thing is man can create a lot with six hand breadths. Man can do a lot. They can be incredibly innovative, build beautiful things with six hand breadths. But when they were building God's temple, he said a cubit and an extra hand breadth. Why did he ask them to add in an extra hand breadth? Because that was the hand of God that he was asking them to factor in. That was the hand of God. See, they could create a lot with six, but he said, I need you to add in the seventh. Do you realize that actually numbers in, in, the, in the Bible can actually be very symbolic? And the number seven, the seventh hand, the number seven represents perfection and completion. The number seven is often used in reference to God. You see, man can create a lot with six, and the devil might be able to do a lot with six, but isn't it interesting that the devil can't get beyond six? Six, six. The devil can't get beyond that because he's not God. He can never reach seven. And so they needed the, the hand of God to come in in this moment. Now, if we go back to the story that we're talking about, how many times did the servant have to go look? Seven times. And on the seventh time, what did he see rising from the sea? A cloud the size of a man's hand. Symbolically, the hand of God moving heaven to respond symbolically the hand of God saying, I'm here to do what only I can do. And now there is the sound of a mighty rain. Keys can come join me now. Here's the last thing that we learned from Elijah's story. Expect God's anointing to empower you. Expect his anointing to empower you. Verse 44 to 46 Eliza shouts, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. And soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. The moment that Elijah saw the cloud the size of a man's hand, he knew God was there and answering his prayer. He knew that God was about to send the promise of rain, rain that he had prayed for. Now, when I was reading this part, it reminded me of something that happened at church camp when I was back in high school. And I remember we were camping out one night and our camp leader, all of a sudden, it was this beautiful beautiful night and our camp leader goes wait y'all come with me we're going out into the clearing we didn't know why and so we go out into this valley area she takes us out about a hundred meters from our campsite and she goes can you hear it and we're like no I don't know what you're talking about and she goes the the rain can you hear it and legit none of us could hear a thing but for some reason she's like I hear rain coming 
When I say run, we're going to race back to camp and try to beat the rain. And none of us could see anything. None of us could hear anything. But then all of a sudden, moments later, this black wall of clouds appears above the tree. And it starts moving towards us. And she goes, run. And so we all start sprinting back to this camp. And within seconds into our sprint, this wall of rain just smashes over us and beats us back to camp. It was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. I could not see what she saw. I could not hear what she heard, but she knew there was the sound of a heavy rain. And I love that in this moment, Elijah could see what others couldn't see. All he saw was a cloud that big, and he knew rain was on its way. He could see what others couldn't see. He could hear what others couldn't hear. And I love what happens next in the story. It says the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. In the NIV translation, it says the power of the Lord came on Elijah. So he tucked his cloak into his belt so he had free reign to move. And he starts running back and he outran Ahab's horses. He outran the horses, y'all. Elijah expected heaven to move and rain to fall, and he expected God to empower him for the fight. It was the seventh hand that came on Elijah in that moment, and it empowered him to outrun the horses of the enemy, to outrun the horses of the evil king, to outrun the man who wanted to kill him. Do you realize that when you actually pray to God, the God of heaven, and you come before the enemy with your weapon of praise, with joy as your strength, you can expect God's anointing to empower you in that moment. You can expect his anointing to empower you to outrun the steps of the enemy, to outrun the enemy as he tries to chase you down. That's the power of God. And I love this story of Elijah because there's so much we can learn from him about how to pray both publicly and privately. It was truly a life of obedience, a life of possibly not understanding everything that God was asking of him, but saying, okay, God, I'll do it. Okay, God, I'll be the last man standing for you. Okay, God, I'll expect these birds to provide for me. Okay, God, I'm gonna trust you to bring the sun back to life. Okay, God, it was a life of obedience. And Elijah didn't miss the miracles in the middle. And he never, he never had a false hope because he never bowed to a false God. I love that. Elijah knew how to trust the word of God. And so he knew that he could celebrate before he ever saw the promise. Elijah was a man of God who lived in expectation of God's empowering. And so today, as I come to a close, I know that there's some of you in this room where you need a bit of the spirit of Elijah today. You need a spirit of boldness and a spirit of confidence, a spirit of obedience, but also a spirit of celebration so that you could look at your drought season and you could confidently say, the rain is on its way. So if that's you, would you just lift your hands as I pray over you, as I pray that praise and joy would fill you. Hands lifted, I'm gonna pray. God, I thank you so much that there is so much that you can teach us throughout your scripture. And God, I thank you for what you've shown us in the story of Elijah today. God, I pray that for every hand lifted, whatever drought season they are facing, God, I pray that you would remind them of the promise that the rain is on its way. God, I pray that 
praise would become their weapon. Praise would become their response. Praise would overflow out of them, confusing the enemy. God, I pray that joy would be their strength. I pray that these people with hands lifted would have joy overflow from them, joy that can only come from you, joy that doesn't look like happiness but looks like a true contentment, living in the grace of God. God, I pray for that joy and that praise to be a marker for these people, for this church and this community in this time. God, would you strengthen them and remind them that the rain is on its way.